welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome along, everybody. It's Thomas Pierce here with you, as I am every Thursday, for conversations in the Bronovo Podcast of an intellectual and intentional nature that provide men the skills and confidence to have more challenging discussions and communicate strong emotions. This episode today is part two of my conversation with Brent Giannata. He is a former CIA counterterrorism analyst, and the first part of our conversation was more focused on international affairs, U.S. uh, foreign affairs policy, and this conversation is more about internal domestic happenings. So Brent had a column in the LA Times comparing the radicalization of jihadists in the Middle East to the type of polarization we're seeing in domestic politics here. And we also talk about the profile of a shooter. What are the psychological and emotional circumstances that make fertile ground for someone to be rash- to be radicalized? And and this comes in in the wake of the multiple mass shootings that the higher profile shootings that have happened in the U.S. uh, in Buffalo and in Uvalde, Texas. So enjoy this conversation. Head back to episode 59 if you want to hear the first part of it. And let me know what you think. I always love to hear your thoughts on the conversations. And please come get involved. Shoot me an email, thomas at bronovo.com. Or feel free to comment on Instagram or send me a message on Instagram, and I'll be very curious to hear your thoughts on on the discussion. Thanks for listening, as always. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm like blaring from the mountaintops. I'm open to be con- being convinced of being wrong about this, but that's where I am right now. <laughs> nice man. I mean, I like I like the vision. I think. There's all kinds of constraints and realistic things to think about. And I think the biggest one limiting us is just the culture wars domestically and how limiting it is. It's really hamstringing us internally because also another thing that kind of struck me was that the things you described, like the elites populating the best schools and wealth concentration, that ha- that's the same thing here. You know, it's not, you know, there is a a much bigger middle class, obviously, and there are pathways to success here. But Mm -hmm. the way that the, like, there are those differences, there is the extreme wealth concentration and and there is, there are areas that have just been generationally devout devout or um, devoid of resources for opportunity, you know, and it's like, basic shit we can't fix like decoupling schools funding from income tax or property tax. Yep. Why hasn't that been decoupled? Like, yep. Everyone agrees. The data shows education is a huge way to, for, to facilitate upward mobility, mm-hmm. but we can't, you know, they're in like Connecticut, for example, like the richest state in the country. There are um, areas that are, you know, every, in every state there, there's an example. So, mm-hmm. and I think that they kind of like, preying on people's insecurities and fears, whether it like there's theories that it's like Trump's 
rise was indicative of the white majority's fear of being replaced, whether that be economically in a job or in the social majorities as when it comes to like the norms of the, in the culture, uh, ethnic identity of the country, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that people, it's so easy for us, especially with kind of fractured and, and divided attention spans is that no one sits down and reads essays. You know, it's all five to seven second clips on the apps and tip TikTok and shit. So I don't know. I think the thing is that like these, I think history shows that when the people do rise up and kind of come together with unanimous voice, things can change, whether it be domestically or, or overseas. Mm-hmm. But if everyone's distracted, addicted to their phones and just being polarized, then we're not going to see those, those changes. So it's, yeah, man, it's, I think that's the biggest limitation that I can see. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, to shift it back to, to domestic politics, you know, this, these incidences of extreme violence. So like the, the mass shootings and the individual in Buffalo who was radicalized by white supremacist theory and um, went out to murder a bunch of black people mm-hmm. in a racist attack, you know, so what are the parallels that you see between this kind of profile and the other extremists and extremist ideology that you, you studied and, and kind of worked around? Yeah. Great question. So what you need for a mass shooter or what you need for someone to join a terrorist group, well, first you need a psychological vulnerability, and that comes in the form of childhood trauma. It comes in the form of, you know, something that happens to your brain that <clears throat> shuts down a small part of it, where your brain shuts down a part of itself for self-preservation, for protection. So something traumatic happens, and again, this is like this is like the back of your brain, like one of the more ancient parts of your brain is like kicking into gear and it's saying, okay, this compartment of the brain is not as important as the brain's ability to get the amygdala, which is like the alarm system of the the brain to alert the prefrontal cortex that something is bad or something is an emergency, right? So when that thing is turned down, you lose empathy you lose patience, you lose focus, your brain is chaotic. Um, your feeling of like identity is sort of like thrown off and off kilter. Your ability to connect with people is degraded. And so this is the root of like pretty much all human suffering is a part of the brain being turned off that inhibits our ability to connect with each other. I mean, we talk about love, oneness, that's through connection. We only feel that through connecting with each other. And so the psychological vulnerability I'm talking about takes many forms as far as like the exogenous forces that cause it, but the internal stuff is, is very similar. All right. So now you've got this vulnerability where a young person whose, whose identity is still developing, like again, trying to figure out what the hell the rest of their life is going to look like. You pop out of high school or college or whatever it is. And suddenly it's all on you. Like you're not going from seventh grade to eighth grade. It's not that simple. Just like the world just opens up. You're like, well, shit. And so, (laughs) and so now you couple that with digital media and like kids are famously more addicted and, you know, for better or worse, more plugged into digital media than people of older generations. And this is good and bad. It's good that like 
we try to democratize speech and we've got all these different other opinions and we've got people of color and other underrepresented um, groups being able to have their voices heard. I mean, this is fantastic. And many more like media outlets, like trying their style of news and opinion. Um, a lot of that stuff is really good, but there's a lot of bad stuff too. There's the addictive qualities, obviously. And then there's that media companies are like any other companies. They, they want to, you know, increase margins for their shareholders. And when that means choosing between funding like a long form, you know, ex expository or investigatory piece, you know, or right. like, or like getting everybody pissed off the last thing that Ted Cruz said. I mean, the nine out of 10, you're going to go with Ted, you know, because it gets, it gets that sort of yeah. reaction. It gets the clicks and it gets the comments and it gets the shares. And that shit is dollar bill. It's like, take that to the bank, right? Obviously, this model is like horrifically flawed for a citizenship, democracy, mental health kind of standpoint. Okay, so now you got this young guy who's got this psychological vulnerability trying to figure out himself, figure out the world around him and his position in that world. And he's trying to figure out like, what is everybody else up to? Like, what is their deal? And he is supremely vulnerable to what he hears, but not just everything he hears. He's most vulnerable to the stuff with which he can write a very concise, clear narrative. So like, we always say this throwaway line, like, oh, we think in stories, which like, yeah, we, we say that as like a throwaway, but it's like fully true. I mean, this is baked it's a in. heuristic. It's a heuristic. It's baked into the cake of like how our brains function, right? So maybe you or me, like, I mean, we're talking about narratives that like the United States is not all bad, but it's also not all good. And we've got these like benevolent values, but we like imperfectly like distribute them to citizens here and then people abroad. But generally on the whole, all things being equal at a risk adjusted basis, the United States is like, is a is a good for humanity. I would agree with that. I think you would, and most of your most of your listeners probably would too. Um, but someone with that kind of psychological vulnerability um, is going to be very vulnerable to to other stories and narratives that can help redefine their position in the world as something way better than how they're feeling right now. So this eighteen year old guy who went into the the Buffalo supermarket and shot those poor people okay um he probably very likely felt down and out very down on himself his if he had friends they weren't good friends at least he didn't feel like they were if he had family members he didn't feel very supported or connected to them um i'm guessing those things because this is 99.9 percent .9 of these people i mean it's it, it sounds very crude to to lump people into such a category so dismissively, but I mean, the data is there. And so when you plug into the internet and just start just vacuuming up all the garbage it has, I mean, YouTube famously, like you'll watch a totally benign, you know, video about politics. And then an hour later, you're in white supremacy land. You know what I mean? You're like getting pushed close and closer to the dark web where the most repugnant ideals are just are being, you know, celebrated here and there. So yeah, yeah. again, the algorithms in digital media, in these platforms are tweaked and calibrated to a place to take us to obviously where it's going to ping on our vulnerabilities the hardest, but also 
there is an algorithm in our brains that is reaching for these things. It's a match made in hell. That's exactly what happened to this guy. So he found a narrative that made himself the protagonist of his own Manichaean good versus evil type of battle, like existential battle, this cosmic war. And he wants to be the guy or one of the guys. And so this is the narrative that like black people, people from Latin America, poor people, liberals, they're all just like ruining our society to an extent we've never seen before. And only the real patriots and the real people that not only understand this, but have the balls to like take up arms against it are people like me who are going to actually like get a gun, get in their car for a few hours and actually murder people. And he said he loved, um, he Facebook lived his attack like the guy in Christchurch, New Zealand did. Okay, man, that was years ago. So the other part of this is zeitgeist. I don't know the dictionary definition of zeitgeist. It's a word that we pulled from, that we stole from German. I mean, you probably know this better spirit, than I do. Spirit of the time, literally. Yeah, spirit of the time. So it's not, so when we call these people in my old industry, we call them lone wolves, where they're like, they don't seem to be, the part of like a Hezbollah or an Al Qaeda or an ISIS where they like are in a training camp and on the monkey bars and like, like ninja crawling under those ropes with their AK 47. Like that is not what this guy did. He didn't like fly to Afghanistan to go train with anybody. He was on his, on his laptop. Spiraling. And he, he's spiraling because he saw the Christchurch attack and he's on what Gab or 8chan or whatever it is, talking to all these people who are all trying to one up each other as far as explaining how bad the poor immigrant liberals are and what they're willing to do to sort of be that guy. But Buffalo guy is seeing like no one's really answering the call. And so I can make myself stand out to this milieu and be like a hero in this zeitgeist that has totally captured me to convince me that like this is something not only moral, but like cosmically justified and that I'm going to be this warrior hero if I do, even if I die and they will sing my praises for a thousand years and I'll be dead. But being a dead hero to this guy is better than being a loser being alive. And so that's my assessment, my psychological unprofessional assessment of this guy in Buffalo, which is the same as Christ Church, which is the same as San Bernardino, which is the same as the uh, Orlando um, like club attack. And it's the same for the recruits who were in their teens and 20s who lived in Paris, who lived in London, who lived in Wales and Ireland, who left like pretty nice places to go live, fight, and die in a dusty, impoverished war zone in northern Syria. I mean, to make that kind of, that kind of decision it just like it blows most people living in this country away. Like, why would you, why would you do that? Given all the opportunities and like the splendor and just like the raw human beauty that exists in a place like Paris. Well, none of that shit matters because their chaos, like their emergency is the fact that they don't respect themselves. So they don't have anything to hang their hat on like what they've accomplished or what they stand for. And when you're in the pit, when you're in the tank, when you're hitting rock bottom, like truth and logic and A plus B equals C, that shit does not matter. It just doesn't. It gets completely superseded by you can become this like avatar warrior and you can go to this new place and be heralded by people who don't know you yet. 
and you will take yourself from the fringes of society to the center of world events, which is exactly what these ISIS recruits did. I mean, they left London and Paris for a war zone, like a, a desert where they were living in a, in a shack. But suddenly their group is on the front page of every newspaper every day for three years. And so that's a trade-off these guys are willing to make. I would never make that. I don't think you would. You don't want a bullet to the head. You don't want to die in a pool of blood by the side of a Syrian road. I don't. Most people I know don't want to do that either. That's why you need a, an intense psychological vulnerability to be in that space. And honestly, the, the most tragic part of all this is that way too many people in our country, in our society, are almost there because childhood trauma is not something that is exclusive to people of the Muslim faith or of the Arab ethnicity, mm. or of, you know, developing countries where it's like 2% of the elite, like run the entire place, like trauma happens here every single day and twice on Tuesdays, and we don't talk about it the right way. I mean, your whole podcast is about how do we as men like open up and start talking with like a different language and like dig deeper into ourselves and pull out like the less attractive parts of ourselves to become like better people, not just better men, but like better humans better fathers, better boyfriends, better husbands, and just better citizens. Like how do we treat, I mean, treating people that you love and respect and who like, like you and think you're kind of cool. That's easy. Like that is not what this is about. It's about treating the people who you previously thought were uncouth, a, a strain on society, and that you thought it best to like distance yourself and your loved ones from. Like the real test is how do you treat them? How do you think of them? And once you encounter them in the supermarket or in the comment section on Twitter, like how much grace are you going to have? And if your instinct is to troll them and win some very frivolous, you know, instantaneous battle against them, that means you've got work to do. You've got work to do to become a better person and to like really like dig deeper within yourself to like figure out what's what's important. And I'm just, I'm so glad that you and a few others are trying to really do this because, man, as developed as we think our American society is, we are nowhere where we need to be on this very point. Totally, dude. Yeah, well said. Because it all does come back to that that psychological vulnerability. Um, two things from there. Mm-hmm. The one thing about the force for good, that is the U.S., that's the debate. The thing that hangs me up is just the the irony of these founding principles, you know, liberty and justice for all, all men are created equal and just how that was such a hollow value. You know, it was revolutionary in the sense that yes, like the limitations for suffrage were reduced compared to the the context of the time, you know, and the idea of uh, uh, unbiased judiciary and these things, but except if you were black or a woman, yeah. Like, so to me, Except that's that. just where, like, that's just where the, like, all of the good, I really, like, I don't know. It's interesting because it's kind of one of those things where, like, they're different, too. Like, foreign affairs actions and the positives are diff- very different than what happened domestically. But I think that's for me, like, mm-hmm. that's why I don't ever see myself becoming overtly or loudly patriotic, really. Just because when so many people are out there saying that, like, they don't feel safe and not just not even in the like easy throwaway comment of like oh there's snowflakes they can't take not that fuck that shit i'm talking about people who actually feel like they do not belong here even though they're born here 
to me that's mm-hmm. fucked up and to me that is like a big hang up on like this whole is the u.s force for good or not um mm-hmm. and then and then secondly on the yeah the 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 shooter and the and the communication thing i think because when i when i think about these people who get so lost it's like if they knew when they were kids that it's okay to be different or whatever other them is okay you know and maybe there's a few more people who told them they love them or just to know that like we're all weirdos there are like newsflash there are no cool people yeah. <laughs> like everyone's yeah. a freak everyone's a fucking freak okay a like freak. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and yeah. the, and within that too is like the 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 male culture of just one upsmanship and putting each other down and like it's I have the power if I can put someone else down and it's just like super fucked up, you know? It's, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think that's why like all of these things I see like as a, as a root cause of just, if we can develop empathy and, and, and enable people to identify and communicate strong emotions. I think that's such a powerful change. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you just said. So you had two points there. I'll start with the first one. Let's go from macro to micro. So on our values, like our founding values being something that is ironically cast aside when convenient. If you happen to have time to read a thousand pages on this exact topic, on like the history of the struggle between the like implementing our actual values to every single citizen and, uh, and not, um, you should read Jill Lepore's uh, book, um, These Truths. Um, so it's, it's a lot of history, but I mean, you, you get the, the general takeaway that I mean, the, the founders, it's still like very up in the air, like how much they really believed in this for everybody. Um, and just like so tragic that they couldn't make it happen in that time. And that even after the revolutionary generation, so many trade-offs were made to the South, which, you know, continued to have slaves until the 1860s, that in order to keep the union together, we had to we had to sidestep the full implementation of these rights until arguably until the 1960s with the civil rights in 19 in uh, 1964 and then voting rights in 65. So, I mean, the other thing is that if you read the declaration of independence, those values are written in universalist language. They do not say that these rights are reserved by white males who own land they do it does not say these are reserved for christians and they also don't say that these are reserved for us citizens so there's an argument to be made that if we are fully implementing these values to the fullest we need to extend this to everybody I and mean, maybe not you know bring in people from different countries to gain justice in our court system like logistically that'd be very difficult but the spirit of those of those values um, it makes full sense and it would make me feel better as an American if we started to think that way and operate that way. Right. And so what I think is, it's an interesting argument. Yeah. And so, I mean, we toss our values aside in international conflict, like quicker than like anywhere. And, um, <laughs> and my, one reason I believe that's happened is because there was one war um, in the last 80 years that was very justified in our participating and in our 
causing a lot of destruction. That was World War II. And so World War II was, I think, really unique in that it posed like a legitimate existential threat to the free world. You had the Nazi war machine, you had Imperial Japan that both decided like these other countries are, are gobbling up too much of the world in their exploration and colonialism. We need to not only get in on this, we need to like take it all, take it all. And so we had, you know, Japan from the West and Germany from the East, like the value there that unified everybody was that we all want to live in a, in a free society. And we can't do that if these two militaries are on the march. And so the United States deployed its military to the Pacific theater and the European theater. And I had, I personally had a grandfather in both and I know I'm not the only one. And we, you know, like that conflict ended and the United States emerged as, as a global superpower. And I think that men in the United States took that lesson to mean that as long as we use our military power, we can help further secure human liberties around the world. And that is not what happened. What secured human liberties around the world was not our victory, military victory in World War II. It's what we did to rebuild Japan, rebuild Germany, craft them into like very like hefty, economically vibrant, responsible global actors and to establish the liberal international order around which like the United Nations uh, revolves. So the United Nations is a place where if, if I'm, you know, one country, you're another country, we're about to go to blows or I'm about to invade you or you, me to like grab so- scarce resources. The UN is a place where we can both send ambassadors, like talk this out. So we don't, we don't resort to fisticuffs and like just an, one annihilating the other one. And this is an, inc- this is one of the most incredible advancements of human civilization is, is like taking a second to like stop and talk these things out before we resort to violence. Um, but the U S still, when, when our leaders get miffed, like we did before Vietnam, we did, um, vis-a-vis, you know, nine 11 and lead up to Iraq, like nine 11 happened. That's us getting miffed. We absolutely throw, our values out the window and suddenly like human life, like the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Well, that's got to take a back seat. We have to go kill a bunch of people because that's what we think is politically expedient to mollifying the fears that our citizens have based on this like insane shit that just happened. Okay. So like wrap all this up in a bow, meaning that we need to do the hard non-military, non-kinetic work of outreach to the rest of the world and to push these other societies closer to viable democracies and away from semi-oppressive authoritarian political structures. And if you read my favorite political scientists, I have a bunch, but two of them are James Robinson and Darren Assemelu. Um, Assemelu is at MIT and Robinson's at University of Chicago, and they team up to write all these amazing, incredible books that have a lot of data in them too. The first one is called Why Nations Fail, and the second one's called The Narrow, the Narrow Corridor. And it has taught us, or at least like what I gather from, especially the second book, is that a vibrant functioning democracy depends on a balance between elites and non-elites and a government that functions so well that it can balance the two, balance the interests of the two. And here in the States, like you just said, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of like sort of unfair meritocratic tendencies where the elites tend to stay elites that 
someone who went to Harvard in the 70s can send their son to Harvard in the in the 2010s. Like that happens every single day and twice on Tuesdays. But our degree of that kind of corrupt elitism is of a totally different degree than it is in a place like Namibia or Cambodia, right? Like these places are, the wealth inequality is just like astronomical. So that's one good thing for us. But our values of equality and justice before the law, those inherently do not benefit elites because elites have all the money. They've got all the access, the opportunities. They don't want to be equal. They don't want millions of, of you know, riffraff to be brought up to anywhere close to there. Okay, so now there's this inherent push against liberal values by elites. Not all of them, but as a whole, they're at least incentivized to do so. It is, it is then upon the government to boost up the non-elites and tamp down the powers of the elites. And our government is not doing that to the degree that it needs to because its elected officials and its voters are so captured by the hostility being purported by these corporate incentivized media outlets. And there is a zeitgeist to be anti-liberal, to be non-liberal, to be fascist. That's why we're throwing the F word around so much these days. This is the equation. We now know what it takes to keep a functioning democracy functioning. And our hands are completely tied to fix to writing our ship unless we really take it to this media model. If you pull the plug on divisive political media and you wait a few months, I think the US electorate and our society starts to look a lot differently. And I want to add one more thing. We are horrifically divided as a country. And it's like all of our guns and our, sh- our hackles are out against our enemy, which is like the, either the liberal or the conservative on the other side of town. And that is one way to unite a people is through a common enemy, but you can also unite a people through a common cause. And if the United States leadership were to come up with some project that we could all sort of gather around that makes us all proud to be Americans and has us see the sort of road ahead of us where we would all be getting better, liberal or conservative, that our societies would be categorically improving, I think that's the only chance we have to unite the divisions that currently mire us. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well said. I agree. I agree. For me, it's education. Mm-hmm. That could be, is, I guess it's not like a really sexy project to like get people fired up about, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, many, I feel many of the root causes would be alleviated if we just had a better education system. And another, another quick, I don't know if a quick fix, but solution would be to make, the profession of being an educator more prestigious, pay good money, make it competitive. You know, that to me is such a huge thing that instead of, you know, if you know any teachers in your life, they're probably exhausted. They're probably stressed out. They're probably Mm -hmm. feel like they're, as they are providing childcare and to make that a more prestigious career. Like I had a buddy, who was down on a surf trip in Barbados and he was out in the lineup and then 
everybody came out from work because he was off and then he hung out with them. They go to the bar, they're talking and he's a school teacher. It was his, it was his summer vacation. And they found out that he was a teacher and everyone's like, teacher, this guy's a fucking Whoa. teacher, like round of shots. You know, wow. everyone was like so stoked, like, thank you, you know, like, like you're such an important service you're providing. Yeah. And that kind of mentality shift about what are the real important careers in our society? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not just, yeah, sure. Doctors and lawyers are very important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's so much more though, you know, and, so I th- and I feel like that mm-hmm. gets down to also like the dignity of people and making people feel like what they do matters. And like, I feel like these systems we have, these structures and in, in, in the whole institutions of our democracy rely on people giving a shit. And that, all, that also comes from feeling like other people give a shit about what you do. You know, the affirmation of like, oh, my peers, my, my community appreciates and values and sees what I do every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and that really, yeah. I feel like that kind of lessens hostility. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, dude. Brent, amazing conversation, man. I'd, I want to, I will have to uh, pause it, bookend it for now, but we can definitely do another one. Um, we'll jump over to the the Spark by Seek Discomfort, a little conversation game to wrap things up. Okay. Um, so, what is, uh, or rather, what would you rather do? Would you, would you rather get a question first or second? Um, second. Okay. All right. If you're young, this is a question for me. If my younger mm-hmm. self were to see me now, what is something they wouldn't believe? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think that if you told myself, like eighth grade, I just moved to Philadelphia, I was about to start this high school, that I was going to make a group of friends of dudes who are going to be lifelong best friends and that we're all going to be super tight 10 years later, I would mm-hmm. be. You know, maybe I'd believe it, but I'd be thrilled. And I have mm-hmm. that great group group of friends here in Philly. So the That's fantastic. great guys who definitely have, yeah, they've definitely informed this whole like worldview I have too about the communication thing. Nice, yeah, nice. You're the sum of the five people you most surround yourself with, right? Mm-hmm. All right, my turn. When was the moment you realized you are not invincible? Oh my god, That's reaching back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I definitely felt very invincible as a teen. I, I like succumbed to all those stereotypes. I thought I knew it all, or at least I was confident enough that I could like figure out whatever I needed to figure out. Um, in that way, I was really lucky to have a pretty cool childhood, which had a lot more confidence than insecurity, I would say. Um, so I did decently well in school, not straight A's but mostly A's through grade school, junior high, high school. In college, um, I barely escaped with like a 3-2, which was unlike unlike me and unlike sort of my parents and what was expected of me. But I justified it by saying that I played on my school's hockey team. I was in a fraternity. I joined a bunch of clubs and I was very active. I did a lot of traveling. As an undergrad, so I'm like, okay, that wasn't a total failure. But then I got out into the working world and it was hard. Like figuring out office politics um, is just, it's a totally different animal than sort of like walking into a classroom, sitting down at a desk, listening to a teacher, turning to the person next to you and asking for help on the homework, and then going to a party at night and 
you know, having a few beers and like just talking to people and becoming friends, like office politics, when you're working in a company or organization is a completely different animal and people who should like you, they don't. And people who should not like you for some reason they do. And it's like very disorienting. And I, I took a lot of years, like a lot, a lot of years to like struggle to really figure out how to thrive in that kind of environment. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I agree. I got I got chewed up and spit out for my first job. Did you really? <laughs> out of college. <laughs> oh yeah. You're not the only one. Oh dude, crash and burn. Yeah. Oh my god. Straight yeah. up fired fired my ass. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tail tale, tale told by many though. You're not alone. Yeah, exactly. Awesome, Brent. Well, thank you so much for the conversation, man. Uh, I know you're active on Twitter, so where can anybody go get your hot takes if they want to read them? My hot takes. <laughs> My Twitter is at Brent Giannotta, which is B-R-E-N-T-G-I-A-N-N-O-T-T-A. Um, I'm mostly talking about Ukraine and Russia, on which I have very strong opinions about how a lot of things we're doing right, uh, but things we can do even righter. Um, so, Thomas, thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really awesome talking to you here. For sure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, dude. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.